God made me who I am. Do you believe it? Yeah. Do you believe that God made you who you are? With all of your abilities and, and, and differences, God made you who you are to be in this moment. Ah, okay. Uh, today, as we continue to engage the book of Esther, as our backdrop for Hispanic Heritage Month and for the theme of La Familia, we shift our focus to faith and how faith defines us as a people, how we honor the identities of our siblings whose first language may not be English, and we acknowledge their heritage that has basis in the Americas as well as Africa and in Europe. Today, I will share with you a little bit about the call to assimilate and the cost of being true to our faith. So to catch us up just a little bit, if you haven't been here for the whole series, in book, the beginning of the book of Esther, from week one, Reverend Troy told us that it is set in Susa, which is the most secular place in the Persian Empire. Now, Mordecai and Esther and the other Jews are fully immersed in the surrounding culture, such that you would not even know that they were practicing Jews. They had somewhat assimilated. It's said that the book of Esther contains no mention of worship or Torah or dietary laws or even God, but I beg to differ. They tell you in seminary when you hear something repeatedly, you need to pay attention to it and because it's pointing you to a, a, a different truth. You know how when you, you talk to somebody who is a person of faith, and you say, yea, though I walk, because you're going through a miller. And that person knows immediately that you are quoting from Psalm 23, and that you are affirming who you are in God, that even in this moment of distress, you know that God is going to walk with you. Well, that's kind of how the book of Esther is. You see, in the first three chapters of Esther, the number seven is repeated numerous times. They said there are seven eunuchs, seven court officials, seven maidens to attend to Esther, and it is in the seventh year of his reign that Xerxes actually marries Esther. Now, if you were Jewish and you were practicing the Kabbalah, you would know that the number seven is considered a divine number of God. It is considered the God's, num the God's number. It is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's the day that God ordained to be the Sabbath. It's the day that we rest and we worship God. That has been established from the very moment of creation. So when you hear seven, 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 you know that God is all up in the mix of this. You don't have to say God to know that God is weaving in and through this story. Now, the first week of Hispanic Heritage Month, Reverend Troy took us through chapter one, and he told us about the structure of Jewish families and how they are multi-generational and expansive. And he said that Hispanic families parallel or mirror 
that kind of family. And according to custom, Mordecai would have had to have at least a tia or an abuela who would assist in the raising of Esther. That's aunt or grandma. Okay. <laughs> um, to, to assist because Jewish men didn't talk to Jewish women. It was against the custom. So as Esther grew into a woman, there is no way in the world that Mordecai would have talked to her about womanly things. Unlike at Reverend Troy's table. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to last week's service. Um, so it took a village to raise Esther into womanhood. As Reverend Troy told us last week, it also took a table. You know, the table is the time when people gather to create community, to deepen relationships with each other. When la familia is created, it is through the breaking of the bread or the grinding of the maize or the soaking of the corn husk or getting the plantains or the banana leaves ready. It's that time when you you walk into the house and you smell that meat simmering or those fruits going, and you, you know that it's home. You know that it is family. It is a time as you fill those tamas that you create family because it's full of laughter. It's full of love. It's a time when your life is shared around that table. And when you walk through the door, it doesn't matter who you are, you're la familia. It's around the table where you begin to learn about God. You learn about the faith of your family. You learn your traditions. And you learn the importance of being something larger than yourself. It's often through our faith that we become defined as a people. And that's what the story of Esther is about. You know, as I look around this room and I see the wonderful cues that God has made in all of the ages and the genders and the abilities and the sexualities that are in this room, I praise God. Because it doesn't matter what our differences are. Each week we come and we gather at table. And we become la familia. Out of many, we become one. So it was Mordecai and Esther who were the fourth and fifth generations of Jews who were captive in exile. Now, they shared a village, they shared a table, and they shared a faith. In chapter 3, we learn that it's been five years since Esther and Xerxes have been married. It's then when Haman comes in to power. He becomes the second in command in Xerxes' household. We're told that Haman is the son of Hamadeth, or Agag, who was one of the kings of the Agites. Now, this is important because the Agites and the Jews, they had previously warred with each other. During the time of King Saul and King David, the Jews had decimated many Agite cities. They had murdered thousands of people. So there was great animosity between the Jews and the Agites. Now, if Haman would have known that Mordecai was a Jew, 
things would not have been going so well. You see, it is important that, um, I'm sorry. On the other hand, Mordecai knew exactly who Haman was. So when it says that he would not bow, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was putting his life in danger. I believe that Mordecai reached a moment in his life when he decided that he was no longer going to live a life of convenience. He knew that coming out as a Jew would have a cost. He could have continued to pretend to be who he was not, but then he would have been disingenuous to his faith. And he decided that he could no longer live that way. He decided that he was willing to lose his life in order to save his life. Archbishop Oscar Romero said in 1979, those who, in the biblical phrase, would save their lives, that is, those who want to get along or don't want to make commitments and don't want to get into problems, who want to stay outside of situations that demand the involvement of all of us, when you do that, you lose your life. He says, what a terrible thing it is to live quite comfortably. No suffering, not getting involved in problems, quite tranquil, quite settled, with good connections to everybody and everything, lacking absolutely nothing in your life. But he asks us the question, what good is that? It is when we stay outside of challenges, when we ignore injustice, that we lose our life. Because we are a people of faith. Archbishop Romero says to us, are you willing to be Mordecai? Are you willing to live your faith identity? Are you willing not to bow to acts of injustice to the marginalized? Are you willing to live your faith so that it changes the world? And if not the world, then your country and if not your country, then your city. And if not your city, then maybe your church. Are you willing to live your faith so that it changes you? If not, he asked, to what good is our faith? On February 23, 1977, Romero was appointed Archbishop of San Salvador. He was an incredibly conservative priest. Now, while this appointment was welcomed by the Salvadorian government, many priests were disappointed because they had begun practicing liberation theology. These progressive priests who had been serving the poor feared that Romero, with his conservative reputation, would negatively affect the liberation that they had begun within the marginalized. And on March 12, 1977, Rutil Grande, a Jesuit priest and personal friend of Romero, was assassinated. His death had a profound effect on Romero. He later said that when I looked at him lying there dead, and I thought if they killed him for what he had been doing, then it was time for me to get on his path and to make a change in his country.
Romero urged his government to investigate the death of his friend, but the government said no. Romero then began to reveal an activism that he had never shown before in his life. He began speaking out against poverty. He began speaking out against the social injustices. He began talking about assassinations and the torture of his fellow Salvadorians. Then in 1979, the revolutionary government came to power amidst a wave of human rights abuses by paramilitary right-wing groups and the government. They began to escalate the assassinations of people. The violence became known as the Salvadorian Civil War. Romero spoke. He spoke passionately about the government and how they were treating their people. He actively denounced violations of human rights of the most vulnerable people. He defended the principles and the dignity of all humanity. He advocated for people who were on the margins of society. He was vocal about the corruption that was happening within his government. That did not make him popular but he was living his faith. He knew, just like Mordecai, that speaking truth to power and living your faith out loud could cost him his life. On March 24, 1980, while offering mass in a chapel at the Hospital of Divine Providence, he was assassinated, and that was because of his faith. He said in a sermon shortly before his death, a church that does not provoke any crisis, preach a gospel that does not unsettle, proclaim a word of God that does not get under anyone's skin, or a word of God that does not touch the real sin of society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? I believe that we, Resurrection, are called to be that kind of church. And what that means for each one of us individually will look totally different. I am often asked, how will I find my place in this community? And what I tell people is that, what I ask, what are you passionate about? Because whatever you are passionate about, know that the world has a need for you to meet in it. And I believe that that is where each and every one of us is called to live where your passion meets the world's need. Mordecai could have stayed hidden. Romero could have stayed quiet. But Mordecai and Romero's lives instruct us that the truth is that we must live out our faith, knowing that it will cost us something, perhaps even our lives. They both remind us that to be a faith-filled and faithful follower, it's dangerous. Yet what the story of Esther reminds us is that when we have a village like Resurrection, when we have a table at which we gather weekly, when we have the strength of community to live out our faith, when we have a ministry in which we can become family, we can find the courage 
to live a life fully just as God made us. And when we do that, it looks a little like this.